0: For more information about the movement sessions, the food, the center, head to my website nutritiousmovement.com/retreat. That's nutritiousmovement.com/retreat. Hey everyone. I am Katie Bowman and this is the Move Your DNA podcast. I am a biomechanist and the author of Move Your DNA and seven other books on movement. On this show, we talk about how movement works on the cellular level, how to move more and how to move more of your parts and how movement works in the world, also known as movement ecology. All bodies are welcome here. Are you ready to get moving? I was in the local newspaper at four years old and I've got the clipping here. The picture shows a little kid with braids kneeling on the ground, filling a cut up eggnog carton with dirt and a little plant. And it reads, Gardener Katie Bowman, four, works on technique. Although I was raised on a small commercial apple farm, so I did a lot of labor for the growing and selling of our apples, my gardening skill set has barely grown in 40 years because I didn't do much of it between then when I was four and now that I'm 42. I wrote on my blog in early 2017, I think, I realized through my work and research on sedentary cultures that I really needed to be moving my body for the food I ate. That's largely what makes a sedentary population possible is the lack of moving for food. So wild food for sure. That's a set of skills I've also been working on. But in our culture, it's so much more feasible for the millions that can to start learning to grow stuff. Anything really. And I've been doing that as well, and I'm okay being a totally crappy gardener because I'm essentially back at age four, similarly to how I was learning how to write. My writing at four, it was really terrible compared to how I write now, but it actually wasn't relatively terrible compared to the level of practice that I had writing. So just keep that in mind. I'm doing, trying, making mistakes, reorienting, doing, trying again, learning, adopting, lather, rinse, repeat. So terrible or not, I derive a lot of nutrition out in that time in my garden because gardening is a simple way to stack my life. I get time outside, time with my family, I get lifting, bending, squatting, walking, digging, and I get all of those movements out in nature or a green space I'm growing food that we can actually eat. I'm growing a knowledge set that is really mine to keep, meaning I could lose a lot of things, but I can't lose really the skill set that I've developed to know how to grow stuff. Like I could lose all my tools, but I've got the tools of how to do it and that stays with me. So Even though I haven't been doing it long, and though I am by no means an expert gardener, I keep at it. So this year I focused on plants that return every year, perennials. And I didn't do too many annuals, which are plants that needed to be planted every year. And uh, last year, I did a ton of annuals. I was gone for, I guess, at least 30 days. I had to travel for work. And so I decided to focus on perennials instead. So I built a bed for herbs and strawberries in my front yard. For my birthday, I asked for nut trees. And we made a small nut forest of walnuts and hazelnuts and wood, yo. It turns out you can grow your own heat if you've got space to plant a tree or two. And I learned that all over rural and urban communities, people have started community gardens to give access to a garden as a solution to some problem. And Because there are always more thoughts to grow and more to learn, I'm very happy to have Dr. Rose Hayden Smith as my guest on the podcast today. She's an expert on gardens, but not in the way you might think. And she's going to be here to share her three tips for taking action in the garden today. And of course, I will share my tips too. First, though, there is a huge crop of letters in the Move Your DNA mailbag. Let's pick one. Hi, Katie. Can you talk about bags, please? I'm thinking purses, handbags, clutches, tote bags, grocery bags, diaper bags, all those big or small bags. We carry out and about when we need to keep our basic things together. I experienced one-sided back pain this summer, and it made me aware of how much my own bag usage relies heavily on that same side of my body. Do you have recommendations on what kinds of bags slash purses to use and how? What do you use? Thanks, Katie. Great question. I posted a short video on this on Instagram last year, so I'll link that in the show notes. If you can think of your bag and the way you carry it as creating a load, and if you can consider that each load is a particular movement or like a, it lights up a particular set of muscles, then I will let you all think for a minute to see if you can figure out my answer. Okay, not a minute, how about 15 seconds? If you guessed there's not one superior bag shape or a single way I'd recommend carrying one, then you'd be correct. But to break it down quickly, let's assume you have a single bag. In this case, I'd recommend varying your carry, and that is to carry that bag in different ways, over your right shoulder and then over your left, as a backpack, in your arms, hopefully you get the idea. Also, if you search my hashtag, "vary your carry on Instagram, that was, I'm sorry, just me even reading that sentence felt really hilarious. Search my hashtag. You will see more mini lessons to cement this idea because I'll take pictures of me using one bag in different ways to kind of show that we're so used to thinking that the bag dictates how we must carry it. But oftentimes you have way more flexibility and freedom in how you carry the bag, you just have to maybe not use the straps, for example. If you have multiple bags, then you can also rotate through them as each bag is designed to load your body in a particular way. So when you use it as designed, when you use the straps in the way that you would maybe see featured on the advertisement for that bag, if you use every bag as designed, then you would just need a ton of bags to change up the way that you're using your body. But having a ton of bags and varying bags, to me, is like, it's the opposite of minimalism. I personally look for a bag that functions well in at least a couple of different positions. So I have one single bag. It's kind of hard to explain. So this bag drapes across my body. So it goes over one shoulder. The straps cross my body with the bulk being at my hip. So it would be like... It would be like a messenger bag, but it's not that structured. It's very loose. It's kind of like if you just took a big blanket and grabbed up the corners so that you had volume at the bottom and straps up the side. So I like bags like that because they wad up into almost nothing when you travel. So if they're empty, they don't take up any space. Where an empty messenger bag, like the bag itself takes up so much space. So I can wear that bag. I can easily change carrying positions from draping it over the right side versus angling from the left side. I also gather this strap up in my hands and I hold the stuff that's in the bag in one single hand. So using my grip strength, it's not draped over my wrist. It's literally me pinching, kind of if you imagine again, gathering that blanket up by the four corners and grasping it so that your grasp was forming the bag that is a, that's one of my favorite carries. So I like to vary my carry and I like purchasing items. So if I'm going to buy something, it's going to be one thing that works in multiple ways so that it allows a lot of movement diversity. It doesn't, it doesn't cast me into one single bag use. And then I also have a small backpack. I think it actually was a kid's backpack that I'll use for long walks or hikes. And sometimes I'll put my little Collapsible bag inside my backpack. So, if I get tired of carrying the bag loaded onto the frame of my body, I can throw my backpack in the bag and then go back to carrying it with my grip strength. So, those are my two solutions. You know, like I'm walking with people and for a long time. So, being able to carry food and water and other supplies, bags are great, but I tend to stick to the most uncomplicated design as possible. So, thanks for that question. That was a great question. And, P.S. All of your questions are fertilizer for my thinking, so do not hesitate to ask me a question by emailing podcast at nutritiousmovement.com. But keep in mind that I might have already answered your question in a previous podcast, or not your question per se. If you have a question, go to the blog, use the search box. Use the search box from the blog. It'll search the website differently than if you use the search box from the homepage Put in some key words because I look for the questions that come in and I would say that 50% of the questions you are asking are answered with sometimes hour-long explanations in the form of other podcasts. So if you have not worked your way through the hundred plus episodes, which I totally understand why you wouldn't have done that, you can at least start reading the show notes or listening to that podcast if you have something you want to know. That's already been answered. Okay, so I also noticed that I use a lot of gardening puns in that last bit of introduction, so I promise I'll lay off them for now. So coming up, we're gonna meet Terrell Fox of Unshoes. Unshoes is a member of the Dynamic Collective of companies that support this podcast. They are Softstar Shoes, My Mayu, Unshoes, and Earthrunners. They all make minimal footwear, and Venn Design makes beautiful minimal home furnishings. I have been enjoying getting to know these makers. I use these products. I believe in them. And this episode contains our final interview in that series, so stay tuned for that. For now, though, I am pleased to introduce Dr. Rose Hayden-Smith. She is an author, educator, and advocate for a sustainable food system. She works for the University of California. Dr. Hayden-Smith leverages the power of social technologies in her research, As a historian, to tell stories, share information, spark conversations, and engage with a wide range of people interested in the food system. She believes in the power of gardens to transform the world. Rose Hayden-Smith, welcome to Move Your DNA.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Um, What a privilege to be here. I love this podcast.
0: Well, thank you very much for listening. And just so you listeners out there know, I've known Rose for A long time. I feel like time has just maybe flown by, but I feel like we're somewhere like around 15 years, maybe 12 to 15 years was my Ventura time in California.
1: Yeah, I would say at least 15 years. Yeah.
0: And uh, I haven't aged a day. No. (laughs) (laughs) Neither one of us has. And I've been following your work for a long time. So I, I knew Rose personally, just as someone who used to come move at our old studio there but Rose is an academic and she has an amazing book which we're going to talk about it's called Sowing the Seeds of Victory American Gardening Programs of World War 1 I. I love academics and I love technical reading especially when it's really accessible and not jargon heavy so when I wanted to talk about action oriented items that get people moving in ways that they hadn't thought of it gardening and food Consumption is a big part of that. And so it just occurred to me that Rose, you have such a unique perspective on food, food systems, that I just want to put your voice out here. So thank you for coming on.
1: Yeah, thank you again for having me. I'm thrilled.
0: Before I left Twitter, your personal account, I don't know if it's your UC account, but you had this hashtag food observer. And I loved it because I feel like it sums up. What I do. Like, I'm a movement observer just as much as I'm a movement instructor. And I, and I see movement and how it works everywhere. I see how various systems that are maybe off other people's radar as being movement related, as related to movement. So, what does food observer mean to you?
1: Well, so that's really interesting um, about that question. So, my personal Twitter handle is Victory Grower which is a riff off my interest and passion for the victory garden movement and the radical notion that we should have gardens everywhere and that everyone should be gardening. So Food Observer is my account that I created for the University of California, uh, a digital platform called the UC Food Observer uh, in support of the university's global food initiative And it's been really wonderful to be able to, as an academic, observe what's going on in the food system and basically curate content and then create original content that's designed to connect people with information and perspectives and ideas about all the topics that would involve the food system, not only in the US, but internationally, whether it's, well, you know, food touches everything. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're all stakeholders in the food system because most of us eat, you know, several times a day. And uh, it's political, it's social, it's historical, it's cultural, it's economic. Uh, food is involved in all of these things.
0: Yeah, we had a guest on, Philip Brass, whose work with the First Nations in Canada, he has this statement where food is the is the spine or the axis of a culture. And I just was thinking about that that indigenous perspective as I was reading your book, because Sowing the Seeds of Victory is really about using gardens as a political strategy, as a, like a, patriotic strategy, which I just thought was like, wow, that is such a unique. It was just a different perspective than I was used to hearing it. And it could be the circles that I move in. But gardening is becoming a thing, a new thing. And like, I have to just kind of laugh when I say that, because from the historical perspective of it's the opposite, it's we only see it as a new thing because of this brief window of human history where we haven't had, you know. Each one of us pulling the food off the land, cultivating it or, you know, hunter gathering it in some way. I've seen gardening coming up in various magazines as a new way to get fit. Just get in a garden and do these exercises. And I've seen farmers discuss starting farm fit programs to help people get complex exercise while helping them out with the labor that they really struggle to be able to do, especially on smaller farms. There's gardening as part of social justice initiatives. Like I'm thinking of Ron Finley and his personal stories. He grew up in a food prison. Growing food is like printing money is his statement. And then a couple months ago, I read there was Paul Quinn College and it was a financially struggling institution and they decided to give up their football team, rip up their football field and start an organic garden. I just want to read this to kind of set the complexity of what we're talking about. Nine years ago when the historically black college on the south side of Dallas was in financial crisis and had a 1% graduation rate, a new president turned everything over, including the football field. There's more than one field of dreams, all right? Why should we tie everyone's future to athletic success? And when Paul Quinn College decided to convert its football field into an organic farm, eyebrows were raised— But the move symbolized the college's dedication to a team of a different kind, a team of individuals and organizations fighting to end food insecurity and injustice in the United States. Located in a federally recognized food desert, the farm has produced and provided more than 30,000 pounds of organic produce since its inception in March 2010. No less than 10% of this produce has been donated to neighborhood charitable organizations. The rest supports community members, the college and restaurants and grocers throughout Dallas. In addition to providing fresh, healthy, affordable food options for its surrounding residents, the farm strives to improve communities through the Metroplex by providing hands-on educational experiences for youth and adults alike to promote healthy eating, improved food access, and environmental stewardship. This is what I've seen in the last few years. Rose, what have you seen that convinces you that gardens have the power to
1: transform the world? Well, I've traveled a lot, not only in the United States, but internationally. And gardens are a thing. And I think um, work like what Ron Finley's doing with the sort of um, radical nature of gardening in public or community spaces is really important. In the time that I've been working with gardens, we've seen the school garden movement just absolutely explode. And, you know, gardens are the first step, right? So you get a school garden and then maybe you get a farm to school program and you get nutrition education in the classrooms. And so I'm seeing a lot of interest in gardens and a lot of interest in heirloom varieties, Mm -hmm. which I find really hopeful uh, in terms of people learning more about um, biodiversity and environmental health, and also again, just sort of about food trailways. So I'm seeing a lot of interest in gardening. And you know, I I look for at, you know, for example, at the Master Gardener Program in the state of California. And there are like over 6,000 active master gardeners wow. in California out there, you know, working with communities. And these classes are packed across the United States. The master gardener classes are just packed. People are hungry for knowledge, and people are also seeing gardening as a means of civic engagement. Mm-hmm which I think is absolutely critical and wonderful. It's really collaborative.
0: How did you get into gardening in the first place?
1: So that's kind of a weird story. So my family did some gardening when I was a kid. My grandparents were from a rural area and then later ended up in um, in a city, Jackson, Mississippi. And they gardened and really raised much of the food they produced. I remember being pretty... Surprised when I went with my grandfather to the grocery store on a visit in high school because his week's groceries were a small bag because he was going out fishing and then they had this huge garden at their home. And I was pretty impressed with that. And so I always did some gardening. And then I I went to work for the university as a director of a 4-H program. And there was an advisor from uh, Northern California named Dan Desmond, who was my mentor. And he said, you know, a great foundation for a 4-H program would be to go garden-based education Mm -hmm. because you're going to hit all of these wonderful high points with kids and families about nutrition and STEM, and you know, environment and stewardship and community service, and I became absolutely hooked. So I started doing not only gardening programs with 4-H clubs, but also with um, in school-based programs. And I led a school garden program at you know my daughter's school for five years. Because there were so many ways to weave it into the curriculum, no matter what you were studying, whether it's history or language arts or science or math, and got really hooked. And then my county didn't have a Master Gardener program. We were partnering with Santa Barbara County. And I went, wait a minute, you know, Ventura County, a huge demand. So I worked with, um, spearheaded actually, uh, with a group of my colleagues, an effort. And we started a master gardener program in Ventura County. And I was the um, master gardener advisor for four years. And then simultaneously, in addition to sort of being a practitioner and a garden educator, I'm an historian. And my, my research sort of collided with what I was actually doing mm. with my hands every day. And I started learning about this rich history of sort of school, home, community gardening in America, but not only in America, all around the world. And then I started doing research about the history of sort of women in this sort of effort and really got into it and ended up writing a book about it.
0: Yeah. So hopefully everyone out there is (laughs) feeling like, okay, I want to grow something or at least nodding their head. So we asked you to prepare three action items, actions that we can take now to get them going with gardening in, in some way, getting them in the garden in some way. So what is your first item?
1: Well, my first item is to get started. And that can be a small action. And I am inspired by the Victory Garden models of World War I and World War II. Not the war part at all, but the gardening part. Gardens were front and center everywhere. And so the first action I'd like people to do is to start gardening and to make the garden visible. If you live in an area where you can garden year-round, garden in your front yard. You know, I had for a long time, a raised bed at the top of my driveway, you know, start a garden in your school, start a garden on your median strip for me, making it visible, is not only a way to increase interactions with people about gardening and spark conversations, but it also is um, a demonstration of your commitment to garden.
0: What was the motivation in the world war one and world war two programs to display your garden? Was it simply just to show that you were doing your part?
1: Yes, it was absolutely. It was to, to show that you were committed, that you were doing your part And sort of an acknowledgement of the collective nature Mm. of the effort, which was really important.
0: So I try to come up with a tip to match every one of our experts tips. And I am not an expert gardener, as I said earlier in the show. But if you get our newsletter, my community movement challenge this last summer was to go out right now or at least sometime in the next week, and find out where your community gardens are already located. Maybe you have to look online. You maybe have to call your local gardening supply store. Find out where they are, what their address is, and create an event, either just yourself or with your family or friends, and create a community garden walk. Like, actually get yourself into a garden. You don't have to do any gardening yet, but get yourself there by walking to your community gardens Putting your feet upon that soil, once you see them and are aware that they are there, maybe they're accepting volunteers or renting plots, you're much more likely to get some growing started.
1: I agree. That's a a wonderful way to do it. And the, the knowledge and the expertise that's resident in community gardens is really helpful for people who might just be starting out gardening.
0: And a fun fact here I live in a retirement community. And it's considered a low mobility area just because of the demographic. But we have low mobility community gardens, meaning the whole garden has been scaled up so that you can do it comfortably without needing to bend too much or if they're all wheelchair friendly. So if you are thinking about creating a community garden, remember, you can diversify the shape of your community gardens to meet the needs of more people who might want to be coming out there. Okay, next tip.
1: So, my next tip is if you live in a part of the country where outdoor gardening is more challenging during winter months, I actually have two tips within this one tip. One tip is to try container gardening inside and maybe with herbs and greens. And if you're gardening with kids, you could make a windowsill garden. And that's really easy to do. You get a recycled Ziploc bag put a bit of moistened soil with maybe some carrot seeds, and then tape it to a sunny window. And that's a really easy thing that you can do. The other thing that for people who are really ambitious is to pick up a copy of one of Elliot Coleman's books about sort of extending your growing season and the sort of gardening strategies and how-to's about how to maybe grow three seasons out of the year, even in climates that are colder.
0: I like that. We are fortunate to live in this weird microclimate that's got a really long growing season. But there's a couple limitations that I hear people protesting is one is lack of space. So I think that your tip pertains not even to winter challenges, but space challenges, right? Like I can do all the same things that you just said if space is my issue.
1: Absolutely. Container gardens are absolutely wonderful. And I always have a couple of container gardens going on, even though I'm not, I don't have terrible space constraints. And um, I think that the space is a big issue. But if, you know, you can make a container garden with materials that you probably already have around your home or that you can get at a thrift store, or pretty inexpensively. But they're also, the containers for gardens are becoming much more high-tech. And I'm always amazed when I go onto a gardening website to see the sort of vertical tools that have been developed for people to grow vertically. And it's really amazing to me what sort of containers are available now to facilitate and help you adapt to small spaces.
0: Those are great tips. I I was just thinking too, I have a pretty big container garden, even though I have lots of space. Like I have, I use some of my land space, but I just like containers. Like I can only get tomatoes to grow in this region because I built a small greenhouse made out of trash (laughs) in the front of my house. And I find that it's easier for me to tend to things where I'm passing them already to get to other places. So my container garden is between me and where my washer and dryer is and between where I and my car is. So it's in a high traffic area and I just end up weeding small bits of time, watering small bits of time. So don't be daunted if you live in an urban setting or don't have lots of space, it's still possible.
1: It is. And in fact, one of the best methods um, that I've used consistently over the years is the square foot gardening model, which is also a great model to use with kids. And if you're, or if you're in a classroom setting where everyone gets a square foot, but one of the things that I I've always done with container gardens too, is that the scale of it might be that for a child that's learning about responsibility, they can be in charge of a container Mm -hmm. garden. And that's also a a really rewarding exercise for them.
0: Oh, I can just keep talking about your second tip. My second tip is just, I think sometimes there's two hurdles to overcome when it comes to gardening. There's overcoming the lack of knowledge or experience. But for many people, of course, I'm not a gardener again, and I'm like in a body world. People will say that, you know, they can't bend. Their hands don't grip very well. Their knees hurt. So the idea of gardening, which is It's a physical activity feels out of reach. It's another hurdle to overcome. So I would say to learn some great gardening form, learn how to lift and carry well, learn how to bend well, learn a few hand stretches, how to play with your tools and your tool grip so that your time in the garden is not only nourishing you in the sense of the green space and the food that might come forth from it, but also your body is being moved well while you're doing it. I wrote a couple articles on this and I will put them into the show notes, including a just kind of general how to bend well using more of your hips and less of your spine and knees. I will link to that so you can go practice it later. Rose, what's your final tip?
1: Well, I'm going to come back to something that you said, which is a really critical point, which is that a challenge for people who want to garden, who maybe haven't gardened before is information. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of information out there, but sometimes it's hard to, to find. And I really want to encourage people who are interested in gardening wherever they live to visit their extension master gardener website there is an extension master gardener program in every state and it's even gone international now and this was a program it starts out at the usda it's managed by the land grant university in every state And it sort of rose up as a result of the environmental movement. It actually started in Washington state in 1972 and just caught on fire across the United States. And you will find the best gardening information for your region, your climate, your considerations. And it's science-based. It's really, really wonderful. The websites are packed full of information. And then the Master Gardener programs also do helplines. They do events in communities, at nurseries, at farmers markets to provide information and um, absolutely wonderful program. And then the tip within that tip is that if you have kids and you want to garden with kids, I really encourage you to run over to the Junior Master Gardener. Website And the Junior Master Gardener program is um, run by my dear friends at Texas A&M University. It's an international program, and they have got books and tips and all sorts of things for gardening with kids. And absolutely wonderful website.
0: I guess my tip is somewhat similar, only there's less of a system behind it. And it's just find a mentor. It doesn't have to be anyone who's a master or you don't only have to have a master gardener. I have found for me, so like I would say that I I probably mentor movement for many of you listening, but when it comes to all the other things that I want to do, I need someone who's already doing it better than me, more than me. And it doesn't have to be the person who's doing it the best. It just needs to be someone who has some experience or some tidbit that I can Physically participate in. So when I say find a mentor, I usually mean that is a little bit different than like find an expert because a mentor is usually someone who you can move shoulder to shoulder with because sometimes when a person is doing the thing that they've figured out how to do and then they write about it, they're leaving out steps that they might not even realize they're doing. So I've just found like through great neighbors, I have a neighbor and I swear she's a master gardener. She says she's not. She says that she's just learned through trial and error, but she'll always come over and she's maybe five years older than me, but she kind of talks with the wisdom of someone who's 107. I found a bunch of winter squash plants that were already on a half dead, but I got them for almost no money at our local farm store. So I was like, I'm going to throw those in the ground and I'm watering them. And she just walks by and she's like, oh, squash hate wet feet. And I was like, you know, it's just like a little line of wisdom. (laughs) And squash hate wet feet is way easier for my brain to grasp a hold of than to try to memorize all the things that plants need. So there's like something to this just casual interaction. I mean, it's not a parable by any means, but there's these like little, they're like memes. They're almost like... Memes. And so I have found that learning for me has definitely been a hybrid of reading the books and the text and then having someone else filter five simple lines. And then if you have a community of people that each have their own, you know, version of squash, hate, wet feet, then pretty soon I have this kind of strange reference system in my own head about what to water and what not to water. So find. A mentor or seven who are all doing something slightly different in your area and see what happens.
1: Uh, I think that is absolutely great. I learn more from other gardeners. It's amazing, and um, people come from different regions and and different cultural traditions and people will also start giving you seeds, Mm -hmm. which is wonderful.
0: And just talking, like if you are friends or you build friendships with various people, then I might not have to remember my chart of what to plant. You know, if I've got two friends who are gardening and they'd be like, hey, did you get your garlic in the ground? I was like, oh, right. Garlic has got to be in there in November. Totally forgot. But they did it. And so it's just these casual lifestyle reminders that fit into the flow of life. And so... Just like I have recently friended a fisherman who's going to start taking me out, friend some gardeners and just see what happens. Well, Rose, I really appreciate you coming on. Is there anything else you would like, any other bits of wisdom or memes you would like to share with us before you go?
1: Well, you know, if your library has a copy of my book, please go grab it. It's really an interesting book. It's got a lot, uh, you know, it's not purely history. It's also got my sort of seven political planks about gardening and the food system in there. And um, another thing too that is in there that I think is um, pretty relevant right now is I have a whole section on poster art and those wonderful, incredible food yeah. posters of World War I and World War II and Propaganda. So, you know, the propaganda that was used to promote gardening in World War One and World War Two was positive for the most part. But um, it's really interesting to learn more about those posters. Probably you've seen those posters online and to learn more about the history of those posters, like the Food Commandments poster, is really fascinating.
0: You know, this book is such a great book. If you homeschool, especially, I mean, it's great for anyone, but if you were thinking about trying to do a food unit on the history of food, like there's so much nutrition and that's fine. But this is like, it's a whole different perspective. It's to really understand the food system and how we got to where we are today. But there's this poster, food, one, buy it with thought, two, cook it with care, three, use less wheat and meat, four, Buy local foods. Five, serve just enough. Six, use what is left. And it just ends or concludes with don't waste it. And this is from 1919. And when we talk about like what we're spending money on as far as like trying to get education across and figure out what's the best parameters, these simple guidelines have been around for so long. And I don't know if we necessarily need to produce more guidelines or if we just need to start heeding the ones that we have. And I think that that change, that personal change in behavior is so much more challenging that a call for just, well, do we really need to buy it with thought? Let's do more research on seeing what thoughtful buying does. Like, I feel like we're in that loop of just wanting something that maybe is never coming that really mandates that we make certain or better choices for a food system and for all. So anyway, I highly recommend it. You can find more about Rose Hayden Smith at UCFoodObserver.com or on Facebook and Twitter at UCFoodObserver. And you can find Rose's book, Sowing the Seeds of Victory, American Gardening Programs During World War I at your local library. And if it's a keeper for you, buy a copy from McFarland, who's a publisher. I love buying from publisher. Or of course, you can probably find it on Amazon. Yeah. Thanks for being a guest.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to talking again and happy gardening.
0: Making things is a lot like gardening in some ways. There's a lot of preparation and trial and error, a lot of hard work, and if you're lucky, a bountiful harvest. This season on Move Your DNA, we've been meeting the minds behind the companies that support this podcast. These are all companies that have been making products that I've used for years. All of these companies in the Dynamic Collective take ideas and turn them into products, something that I'm just... Always astounded by. And I'm not talking about books. Like building a document is one thing. Making something, making a a real functional thing is just a skill set that I'm just interested in getting to know more about. So we're going to talk with Terrell Fox today. He is a wellness entrepreneur and creative problem solver. And he is the founder and CEO of Unchoose Minimal Footwear. Terrell, welcome to Move Your DNA.
2: Thank you very much, Katie. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah. I feel like we've talked a lot in emails and texts because I was passing through your neck of the woods years ago. We were trying to meet up. You were sick and or maybe I was sick or maybe one of our kids was sick. (laughs) I don't remember what it was, but
2: yeah, something like that.
0: Yeah. I've been wearing your shoes for years and it's been so fun to kind of be privileged enough to see the back end of the shoes. (laughs) You know, everyone (laughs) like they see the front on the website and they buy the shoes and they put them on, but it's nice to get to work with shoemakers and, you know, furniture makers when they're like trying to figure out, like, how do we help people move more? And so I I just am fortunate enough to get to see a lot of that process. And I want to share that process with our listeners. And I think this series, this kind of series within a series has also turned into, it's not guidance counseling <laughs> as far <laughs> as careers goes, but I think that As kids and teenagers, like we think like, oh, we're going to go study something and then we're going to go get a job with that thing that we studied. Or like there's no wiggle room for changing who you are in the process or what you do in the process. And one theme that's been constant through these maker interviews is not one person, whether it was furniture or footwear, said like, I had a lifelong passion for designing footwear or I went to study footwear design, and thus, this is what I do. Everyone has this great kind of origin story, and you studied graphic design.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right.
0: How did you come to design, and then how did you come to shoes?
2: <laughs> well, uh, the one main thing that I learned while studying graphic design was problem-solving techniques, and, so, and I feel like that really has contributed to my life a lot, and so I don't regret what I went into at all. Um, But I, I studied graphic design. I got a good job right out of college. And I live in a small town, so there's just only so many opportunities for that kind of work. And, um, you know, I had I had worked at a couple different places, and I just didn't really feel like it was the best fit for me. I thought about going off on my own and doing freelance work. And that would require moving my family to a, a large city. And we were struggling, deciding, you know, well, do we want to stay here? Do we want to live kind of in the country and you know what do we do what do i do for a living and and that's kind of right around the time when i just started tinkering around with making sandals and I, I originally was just going to make them for myself because i was looking for a lightweight sandal that i could go backpacking with i knew nothing about the concept of minimalist shoes until i started researching lightweight shoes and then i i discovered vibram five fingers and everything just clicked and it made so much sense to me and i thought yeah I need this, but I still want sandals. So I'm still going to make my own. And, uh, and it was my wife's idea to, to, to take it and turn it into a business. And so, um, and that really, that allowed me the freedom of living where I wanted to live. And so I thought, you know what, how many people get an opportunity to run a shoe business, (laughs) even if it fails, what a great education. And then it would allow me the freedom to live where I wanted to live, to do what I wanted to do, rather than, you know, trying to sacrifice who I am to pursue what it is that I studied. So at that point, it just made so much sense to just take off and do what I wanted to do.
0: So you get to do what you want to do, which is always nice. But you decided to mass produce footwear for people. So there must have been something about a lightweight sandals, whatever problem you were trying to solve within yourself,
2: uh-huh.
0: as far as like why you needed lightweight sandals when you were backpacking, whether it was you felt better or you just craved this feeling. How did this work become important to you making footwear?
2: I think where it really became important to me was when I actually learned about the benefits of minimal footwear and when I learned about how our feet really work I've always been the type of person that I wear sandals more than shoes I go barefoot when I can and I couldn't always explain it but it just felt right to me and so when I when I was able to put information with the feelings that I already had inside I just felt that this is important this is something that that people need
0: what have you learned about your customers like who are your customers what do they want what are they looking for
2: uh, the customers have shifted over the years. You know, when I first started doing this, I literally knew nothing about business, nothing about marketing, really nothing about anything.
0: <laughs> your so, logo is really great, though. Did you do your own logo? Oh,
2: yes, I did. Thank you. <laughs> so
0: you. So you nailed the logo. You knew how to make a
2: logo. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so so yeah, I mean, I just started doing it and the book Born to Run had just come out and lots mm-hmm. of people were running barefoot. And so that was my customer base right at that moment. But that was never really who we marketed to. My goal in making Unshoes was to make a minimalist sandal that looked more normal. At the time, there were only two other companies offering minimalist mm-hmm. sandals, and they were very, very primitive. Um, you know, which which I had nothing against, but I wanted to have something that was a little bit more sporty looking, um, something that looked a little more modern. So I started figuring out how to. Integrate these thin minimal soles with climbing webbing, and now that's that's pretty normal. I mean, it's most minimalist sandals use webbing, and that's that's you know there's nothing extraordinary about that. But I think that that's what made us stand out just enough to kind of propel us into a different audience, which were people that were really wanting to change their lifestyle in a healthier way.
0: Yeah, I'm nodding because that is so true. You know, I think we share some origin story in the fact that that barefoot running as, I mean, I'm not going to say widespread phenomenon because it's still pretty niche, but it's, it's a thing now that people understand. And it was, you know, it really started with running, but there was hardly anyone making footwear. And then now we've got way more companies. And I wonder, man, you have more companies vying for this kind of niche market. But at the same time, since it's went from, Running or athleticism to lifestyle, and almost everyone has got more than one pair of shoes for their lifestyle maybe one pair of running shoes, but multiple pairs of shoes for their lifestyle. It's really great that we have so many companies because I wear a lot of minimal footwear and have for 10 years, and every shoe style fits differently. Like, we can mm-hmm. say that all feet are anatomically the same, and that. The bulk of their features, distribution-wise, are similar across the board, but feet are so individual, lengths of toes and state of training that I just really appreciate having so many options.
2: Yeah. And from a maker point of view, I'm glad there are a lot of other companies too because because we can't make everything for everyone. Right. And, and so I'm grateful for that.
0: Yeah, it allows you to kind of do what you do really well. And at the same point, I can see... I imagine if you start a shoe company that makes sandals, or if you start a sandal company, eventually you become a footwear company because people love you, they love your brand, and they're like, great, what else you got besides the sandals? So what else you got? That's my question for you.
2: (laughs) So we, yeah, that's exactly what happened because, you know, for one thing, we were busy in the summer and then winter would come around and we're like, all right, let's do something. Um, And then a lot of people would ask us for some other kind of solution. They'd say, you know what, I can't wear my old shoes anymore. I want you guys to make something warmer. And so so we kind of thought, you know, what's the next step between sandals and regular minimalist shoes? And we thought, well, moccasins. So we started off making moccasins. We've got a whole line of those. And then we've recently started making a shoe called Terra Vita, which is a canvas slip-on shoe. Um, it's extremely light. It's, I almost hesitate to call it a shoe because it's so minimal.
0: A foot covering.
2: <laughs> a foot covering, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, the nice thing about that one is that it looks pretty normal. So people like it about that as it is it looks kind of like a Tom's shoe kind of style. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. it's but it's yeah, extremely minimal. So also we have our new wildflower series which is both sandals and closed toed shoes. Right now we just have the two models, but we will be adding more eventually as we, we move forward with those. Mm. I realized I should clarify what the Wildflower series is. It's
0: Yeah, tell us what that is.
2: The Wildflower Series is is a, a line of shoes designed for women to look a little bit nicer. I don't want to say formal, but more formal than for example, our Rockova feather sandals. So we're using metallic leathers and things like that. So they're really designed to allow women to, to still kind of look nicer, to, to feel nicer when they go out on a date or something like that, but not have to feel like they have to crown their feet into their old high heels or something like that. So we want people to be healthy no matter what, no matter what activity they're doing.
0: Yeah, I started this project and then I immediately abandoned it because I was like, I don't think I have the bandwidth to do this project. But it was to <laughs> assess if we compartmentalized or named the category of shoes. Like I get a lot of people going, hey, I have your shoe list, but I need it for this, this situation, mm-hmm. which is work. There's so many categories of footwear and it's so hard because none of those categories are across the board. So what is professional to one person would not cut it for another person's version of professional, right? And then there's like dress and there's dress casual and on and on. And that's why, that's when I jump ship. I'm like, I'm out. But (laughs) it did seem to be that a big complaint from my readers was like, we, we kind of found that there was two holes. There was a lack of children's minimal shoes that were... I'll say school appropriate, but what it really meant was schools often don't allow open-toed sandals. So it was Mm. not appropriate is not the right word. It's like that met certain school requirements. That was a big hole a few years ago. It's since been somewhat filled in, although I think some of the companies that are doing it are outside of the U.S. And so that's, you know, then other people are like, I'm trying to buy within North America because like they're coming from overseas. And then the other one was, what do you call it, a dress shoe? I mean, it's like yeah. Date night shoe, I don't know. Like, <laughs> so for me, I wear unshoes 100% of the time and feel perfectly comfortable with it. You know, I have no problem wearing a minimal sandal as part of my date night. So, again, so subjective, but yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. When you're feeling the need to adorn, there's not a lot of options up there. If you're looking for, I don't know, our styles are so individual and what we crave to dress ourselves up with, it just helps the more options there are. So, that's wildflower. Yes,
2: yes, that's wildflower.
0: What other things do you see farther down the line?
2: So we have some other projects that we have thought about creating and we've kind of worked on a little bit here and there. We, we really try to listen to customer feedback. And so some of the things you already mentioned, kids shoes. Um, so that is one of them. We we currently make sandals for kids, but we don't have any closed toe options. So we are considering maybe creating something for that. The challenge with kids shoes is that having a smaller Doesn't necessarily make it cheaper. In fact, with shoes, it's actually more expensive because it's more difficult to make. So,
0: we we talked about that last time the expectation of mm -hmm. less material and just the fact that we're not used to, like, kids go through shoes more quickly because they grow more rapidly. It's harder to see the investment if you're looking at it, if you're looking up the value. Like per shoe versus per minute of development, the investment <laughs> the investment doesn't seem to be there, but if you look at it the other way, then it's like the investment might be never more important than it is, right, right? And those first I mean, our skeletons are really shaping all the way through sixteen to eighteen, maybe depending. so children's shoes and what else?
2: yeah, and and our goal with the children's shoes really is to to come up with a design that is simple as simple as possible for us to make so that so that we can offer it at a price point where people can afford it but we can still yeah. you know feed our families at the end of the day too so
0: how do you do that are you are you like <laughs> trying out different models like how i mean you say it just like so that's what we have to do and everyone nods it's like right they're yeah, doing that yeah. what does that look like does that look like you trying a bunch of materials styles wearing them What does figuring that out look like
2: yeah, well, um, and that's something I've I've learned a lot about is is efficiency and and how to do this without breaking the bank because it can get expensive really fast. So so the first thing I look at is is okay, you know, how are we actually putting this together? What's the what's the overall pattern? How many seams do we have to sew? You know, how many how much glue do we have to use? How many people do we have to employ to be able to put this thing together? Um, And then we start thinking, okay, well, how many of these things are just expected and how many of them are actually necessary? So there's value added and non-value added. And we've studied lean manufacturing, Toyota. We've tried to just cut out anything that's not value adding, any waste, make things as efficient as possible. So with designing issue, you know, we're really just trying to keep it as simple as possible. And so to start out, we make mock-ups so that's sometimes paper, you know, my kids are often walking around with paper wrapped around their feet <laughs> or tape awesome. or socks that have been taped up and anyway, so it just kind of moves from there. We try materials, we we try a lot of different things. So it it can take some time.
0: Wow. I have never once looked at my footwear and counted seams, but I guess you're right. Like <laughs> the more amount of separate pieces like all of those things are what a manufacturer yeah. Is having to consider.
2: Yeah. Well, and there's like, what can we automate? What has to like use a human brain? Mm -hmm. So anything you can automate is faster, but it's not always as reliable. So.
0: All right. So children's shoes, anything else in the pipe?
2: Yeah. Another thing that people have asked us for is, um, is a women's, I think I say women's because most of the people that have asked have been women. That's really who our audience is, but, um, a boot for fall, winter weather. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's when you look at what we originally came from with sandals, it's a big leap. There's a lot of different things that go into that. So it's something we've been working on for a while, but we haven't really gone very far, if that makes sense.
0: Like, so if you're on like what's the theme across all your shoes? Like, yeah, so you've always done sandals for the most part and mm-hmm. then added, but so is the theme just minimalism throughout or is there some other identifier of your product that's in your mission statement that's also embodied in your shoes?
2: That's a good question. The one thing that's a unifier is that we take an ancient design concept, something that mm-hmm. has been around for a very long time, something that's been proven, something that's it's usually pretty simple in design. Um, to start out, you know, we started out with waraches, you know, the just basic sandals, and then we take it and we say, okay, how can we how can we make this a little bit more modern? How can we apply it to to something that looks a little bit more uh, up to date without losing the simplicity of the design. And in some mm-hmm. cases, you know, how can we add simplicity or I guess simplicity isn't added. It's taken away, you know, <laughs> complexity is taken right, away, right. right?
0: Minimalism or maximalism. Yeah. Which yeah. Is-
2: <laughs> so, so, you know, that's the one thing that we've done all across the board, you know, we're like, okay, moccasins, here's the basic primitive moccasin. How can we make it look more like a shoe without turning it into a regular shoe? So yeah, every product that we have has that as the root of it. And then the other thing in our mission statement is that everything we do, we are we are trying to create footwear that it doesn't do something for your foot. It allows your foot to do its thing. Mm-hmm. So, so we're trying to get out of the way as much as possible.
0: Yeah. Well, similarly, boots, casual boots, casual adult boots yeah. are that that other plead, you know, and I have shoe lists, footwear lists on my website. And every winter I come back to last year's winter list. And it's like, why winter list? Because people are looking for boots and the adult minimal boot choices are just abysmal. They're almost like they barely (laughs) exist. And if they do exist, they tend to not return the next year for, because I think a lot of times footwear companies are having to meet a design need, right? Because then you need to buy all the different colors or all the different shapes or doodads. And so, so yes, please like let me know when that boot is available and I will (laughs) share it with all of our readers because they're the ones who are asking and they're asking me and I'm like, I don't know. I write books about feet. I don't know anything about making, (laughs) making shoes. So you do. So you've heard the people.
2: All right. Great. Excellent. So that's that's good to hear. And that's if any of your listeners want to connect with us, send us messages, we would love to hear their feedback. That's really everything we do is based on customer feedback. So one thing about with boots is is that there are even within boots, there's a lot of variation of, of what is expected and what people want. Like you were talking about with uh, you know, with fancier footwear. You know, one thing we we probably will not do is like fully waterproof winter boots. Yeah. You know, like, that's just, that's a little outside of our realm at this point in time. So they would be more like casual warm weather, you know, you're not going to step in six inches of slushy snow or something, but, um, just putting that out there.
0: (laughs) But at the same time, you know, people in many places of the world for, you know, thousands and thousands of years have put their, you know, uh, self-made footwear in those conditions. And so for me, yeah. like I live in the Pacific Northwest. We have snow, you know, Well, this is not Montana. This is not mm-hmm. Wisconsin. So Wisconsin, my, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, or Nova Scotia, like places where people are just like shaking their fist at me right now with me talking about my winter with air quotes <laughs> around it. And I, and I fully get that. But at the same time, I don't feel the need for Wisconsin improved weather gear in my rain and snow. Like I have adapted to being less comfortable by pairing wool socks, sometimes a couple of pairs with my non-water resistant, but I can still, I can put beeswax on them. I can seal them in myself. And so I end up getting wet, but I end up being warm wet. And so it's like, I'm okay being wet, because I'm not after being perfectly comfortable. I'm after doing what footwear has always done for many, many years, which is give us an added boost of protection, not to make us yeah. impermeable or impervious to nature. Like I, it's raining, it's wet. I'm going to let some of that wet in my feet and I have a fire and I will take care of it later. And I, you know, I know it's like the safety guidelines of myself and, and plus moving around a lot keeps you... Warm and and so I can hear what you're making, which is not rain boots. Like that's not what you're saying. You're making yes, exactly. Well, I can say just again, if you want to take some of my feedback and tape up your kids' calves appropriately with the boots, is (laughs) there is a wide variance in calf shape. So I'm just here to just throw that out there to you or anyone else considering making boots, and that seems to be the biggest limiting factor is. You know, human timeline is pretty long, but even if we went like shod humans, boots and wrapping things around our feet and shanks, which is the way a biomechanist would define the lower leg, like the shin, the shank area. So how can we take that kind of ancestral practice and make it so that everyone's calves can fit within boots? There's something to a a design. You're the graphic designer. So it would be some kind of fold and buckle that would really allow it to change shape because because that that is the biggest thing. It's not only when you get into boots, you're not only dealing with the variance in foot shape and I know you know about that. Yes. I know you know about the variance in foot shape because I've seen how many templates do you have for foot?
2: So we have 6 templates that right. we use for our custom shapes. Now right. we've kind of gone away from that a little bit where yeah. we have you go on the website and just buy our standard size. Yeah, and I mean, and that actually fits most people well enough. But for right. those who do want custom sizes, there's still that opportunity. So
0: There's that with calf shape. So I don't know how to get – I don't know how there would be something either like in stretch or something with yeah. stringing and creative folding. So just putting it out there because – I receive a lot of boot shape feedback, even though I myself am nor a boot maker or a shoemaker. It comes my way. So I'm just handing it over to you as a Perfect. Boot, boot maker. And it has landed. Everyone who's emailed me, it has landed.
2: Um, <laughs> I will take that information and use it. Yeah, and that's actually great feedback.
0: Yeah. I don't think it's something that everyone thinks about all the yeah. time. Right. We, I'm pre-thinking it for you or rather many other people are pre have pre-experienced it and we're pre-loading your design pipe. Okay, is there Perfect. anything else you want to tell our listeners?
2: No, I think that's it. Just, uh, you know, we are working towards these new designs and they might take some time. I don't want people to, to think that they're going to come out, you know, like next month because it, it is a time-consuming <laughs> process. Sure. Um, but yeah, just that another thing that I might add into is with our Wildflower series, just it, for those who may have followed us, for the last I don't know 5 years or so we actually launched our wildflower series once before and we did a Kickstarter campaign and that was successful but we weren't ready to do that it was a big failure and and we learned a lot from it so we we didn't have suppliers in place some of our some of the materials that we were using ended up failing a lot of the sandals ended up failing we lost money on that project despite the fact that the campaign was successful so it actually almost put us under, it was a close to tipping the boat over, but but we made it through. And so we have taken what we have learned from that experience and now we have relaunched the Wildflower Series with all that in mind and we're moving forward with confidence. So we're happy to do that.
0: Well, to err is human, yes?
2: Yes, yes. And,
0: and we all know what forgiving is. <laughs>
2: Having a business has really taught me what failure is and, and that it is an opportunity. It's not something to beat yourself up over. So that has been a wonderful opportunity for me to learn. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, parenting pretty much did that for me. I don't even have to have a footwork company <laughs> to learn that. Terrell Fox is the founder of unshoes. You can find out more about them at unshoesusa.com. And also you can follow them on Instagram. You guys have a fun Instagram account. It's Thank you. unshoes underscore. Is it unshoes underscore footwear? Is that right?
2: Yes, that's correct. Okay, Mm -hmm.
0: Great. And we will link to everything in the show notes. Thanks for coming on, Terrell.
2: And Thank you very much.
0: That is it for Move Your DNA this time. Hey, audio lovers, did you know that you can find three, that's right, three of my books on audible.com and iTunes. I have recorded Move Your DNA, Whole Body Barefoot, and Movement Matters. And if you are interested in today's topic, I highly recommend Movement Matters. It's going to be on point for the stuff that we covered here today. Each audiobook comes with a downloadable PDF, so if you're worried about buying an exercise instruction book and having to learn the exercises via me speaking, it's not really like that. You'll have me talking through all the audio theory and explaining kind of why these exercises and how they work, but you can print out a visual guide to follow the exercises. Every one of my audiobooks has several minutes of bloopers at the end, Katie Bowman style more Katie Bowman than you can handle, or maybe it's just the right amount of Katie Bowman. I'm not sure. It's a good amount anyhow. On behalf of everyone at Move Your DNA and Nutritious Movement, thank you for listening. Until next time, friends, go get your hands dirty.
2: This has been Move Your DNA with Katie Bowman, a podcast about movement. Hopefully you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such.